Uh, today, we have the honor of uh, having Rick Strangway, a professor from uh, Ambrose University teaching pastoral theology, um, who specializes on the Gospel of John. He'll be presenting uh, the word for us today. Uh, he's been a pastor for over 30 years, a very, very wise man. Uh, yeah, please come on up, Rick. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Nathan, and thank you for having me with you here this morning. Really grateful to uh, be part of your worship service and uh, to come into the presence of the Lord. It's always a gift uh, to do that together with uh, a community of faith who loves Jesus and uh, seeks to follow him with, with their whole heart uh, in, in all that they do. Um, I'll acknowledge this though, I, I, I was a pastor for a number of years, second generation pastor. My father was a pastor in the Canadian prairies uh, for years and, um, and I followed in his footsteps. Uh, but when it comes to Ambrose, there's two kinds of classes. There's kind of Rob Snow kind of classes up here. Uh, you know, my son took, took courses from Rob and loved them and uh, they were challenging. And then there's kind of pastoral practical classes down here. This is where I am. So just uh, if you have any expectations, Rob Snow, Rick Strangway. Uh, Rob, okay, you, you kind of get the idea. We, we come uh, a week after Easter Sunday, and what a great uh, season in the life of the church and, and our own faith journey as we familiarize with the story uh, of God through the cross as we prepare, uh, as we come to the, to the empty tomb and celebrate the victory over, over death and sin. And uh, we come into, into the journey of faith, and, and we say to ourselves, Lord, how do we continue to live? And in one sense, this is exactly the question that we're asking. Uh, with the tomb being empty and Christ now risen uh, to, to the right hand of the Father, and we participating in the very life of Jesus himself uh, through his spirit, we ask ourselves, in a sense, out of the echo of the empty tomb, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Our text today uh, really picked up the theme in the middle of the Gospel of John, uh, the, uh, the idea of this one who is coming and approaching Jerusalem and giving us a clue before he arrived to Jerusalem and all the events that we have looked at in recent weeks in our own lives. And in one sense, there's a question that's being asked, and at least we'll start there. The question is pretty simple. It is, who is this one who declares himself the king? Who is this one who we come to follow and acknowledge as the king? And even today, on this moment, that we say is risen, is the, is the glorious king overall. Who is this one that you and I uh, choose to follow? What does it mean to follow him? Well, you likely understand and, and know some of this, so let me just kind of begin by responding. In the first century, that question was a pretty important question, and many people might have thought, wondered, asked themselves, who is this one who comes into Jerusalem? And people are saying, this is the one, uh, referring to Psalm, the Psalm uh, 118, uh, this one who comes as the anointed one. If you're a Roman centurion, if you're a Roman uh, soldier, if you're someone from Rome, you were concerned about this Middle Eastern kind of community that was so significant in the power control from east and west and north and south in the empire. You didn't want just any old king to show up and uh, cause problems. Truly, Caesar controlled the empire. And any little uprising that took away money or control or trade or anything like that in this small Palestinian community, they didn't want anything of it. For there was only one in Roman eyes, one truly anointed son of God, the one who reigned and had control and power, and his power was strength and political influence 
and military control, maybe what we see in the eastern part of the world even today uh, through another strong leader that seems to be flexing his power. To those in the first century Palestine, they were thinking of a king who would bring back, if I can say it in this kind of a language, the glory days of what Israel, the people of God, once were from the Old Testament. Their hopes, uh, dreams, desires, maybe sometimes like us, was that things would be put back to right and we could recall that which once was and have it come again exactly as it was then. King David on the throne, the temple uh, there in its rightful place and no influence from Rome around the temple and so on. The hopes for the king of those first century uh, Palestinians uh, was that there would be, in a sense, the rightful place of God, the anointed one, the Messiah coming back. But John, as he would write his gospel, likely somewhere in the second half of of the first century, maybe even creeping up to the end of the first century, he would be telling a story to, to help those who would follow just like you and I. What does it mean to follow this one who would come, who gave his life, who promised an abundance of life? What does it mean to follow him when the world around us seems upside down, when power seems like it's slipping out of our hands, when the things that we had hoped for, longed for, desired with family, children, finances, whatever it would be, you can add to the list. What does it mean to follow after this king and live a life that acknowledges truly he is the king? It wasn't easy. John does something very brilliant, and I'm going to give you five things. You don't need to remember these five things. It's mostly so I can remember where I'm going. I'll tell you the part near the end that I'm hoping that you'll walk away with. But John, when he would write his gospel, he started in the opening chapter like a brilliant picture with a wonder of different ideas, little kind of hints and, and senses. And the first thing he would say as he would start his gospel was that this was a story just like the Genesis narrative of something new that was beginning. It was like a golden thread that he picked up all the way from Genesis chapter one and two, and now he was reweaving into the story of Jesus, this one that would come, and it would start like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, John one, verse one. The hope, the sense was, those who would read it, those who would hear it, where the first century or the 21st century, was that there was something that was beginning. Can I say it this way? beginning again. There was like a deep resonating drum bass kind of sound that was beginning to emerge from from the storyline that was recalling that which once was and was going to come back. And this sense of beginning was coming in the one who was going to reveal the Word, the Logos, the divine one who was going to reveal the life of God. It would say in John 1 verse 12 that those who would come to follow this one this divine life, light, and love. Those who would come to follow after him would be called his children, his family. There would be something dynamic that would come as their life would be enmeshed in him and a new divine life being birthed afresh in their life. And it would say in John 1.14 in the story of new beginning that he would come, would come, and he would actually in flesh walk amongst us live in the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson would say in his translation, that he would come in the midst of, in a sense, this world, and Sheryl Crow, uh, a writer, songwriter, would say, he would become one of us, look like us, talk like us, at least in first century Palestinian world. 
God, the one who would bring light, would come and there would be a sense of a new start and a new beginning that would come. Here's the second thing, the second maybe uh, in, insight, or I'll call it a golden thread, that another thread that would be kind of woven into the pap- tapestry of the story. As he would come, we would already pick up the sense in these verses that were read in John chapter 12 that he was coming as a king. You get that, I get that from what we heard read to us this morning. He was coming as a king, so that is important. A new beginning, one who is coming as a king. And then the third piece would be simply this that I'll add, that he was coming. And we find in, um, in verse 16 and verse 23 as well, that there would be something that would be glorified. The word glory or the word uh, glorified would be used again and again in John's gospel. And it would carry a sense of brilliance, of magnificence, of, 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 of incredible display. Now, when I was a young boy in the church growing up, and I would narrate kind of my life through the story of uh, the Advent season, and I would think of the glory of God and the shepherds, and I'd have these pictures in my mind from the little, can I say flannel graph? I know, there's only about half the audience understands what that just was. We called it social media back in the 70s. <laughs> But there was this sense that the shepherds saw the glory of God, that it was so bright. And my idea and, and, and kind of understanding of glory was like it was so amazing and so much light and so much shining. But there is truth in that, most certainly. But behind that shining was, in a sense, this idea of the glory of God being revealed or, or, or the one who is coming that would be glory, that we would sense, see in the glory of God who God himself is. That there was a kind of a, 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 an idea of, of his very nature that would be seen. So when John would say as he would write his gospel and write it to those in the first century uh, in, in a time of uh, uh, very much uncertainty, or we would receive it now in the 21st century, what we are seeing in the language that is being uh, unpacked here is as we approach Jesus, come to understand who he is, what he's about, and how he lives his life and steps into the world, we are seeing the very heart, the pulse of the divine God himself, our heavenly Father displayed here amongst us. There's an incredible sense of what was being uh, unfolded. And here in John chapter 11 and 12, kind of like a hinge, couple of chapters in the whole gospel, there's this sense of, oh, there's something's coming. A new beginning, a king that is coming. And we are seeing in this moment, in this hour, as, as it would be referred to in Jesus' words in John 12, verse 23, that the Son of a Man would be glorified. He would be displaying the very heart of God himself. Okay, that's the third thing. Let's go to the fourth thing. And we find it particularly in verse 24. I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So this one who would come, this one who would bring a new beginning, a restart, put the world back to rights, we might say, this one who would come and come as a king, this one who would display the glory and the wonder of God, okay, get ready, this is gonna be big, this is gonna be uh, a reclaiming that which what's the, what we are all expecting. No, this one who would come, who would come as the king into the world, would reveal himself as one who would lay down his life. 
unlike any other royal king that had come before, that literally would take all that was his and set it aside and step into the world and lay down his life for you and for me so that we can participate, step into, abide in, remain in, deeply dwell in the reality of God himself who invites us in. This is a different kind of a king. This is not some politician, and I hope uh, I'm mostly being light-hearted here as I say this next line. I hope there's no politicians in the room that I'm going to offend. This is not some politician who's trying to kind of say, hey, the next seven years here in our province, this is what it's going to look like. Or in Ottawa telling us how we're going to reclaim things and put things back in the right if, if the right people get voted in. No, this is the one who simply is willing to come and serve unlike any display of power. In fact, the idea of power that's found in the gospel and all the gospels and what we find later in Paul's writings again and again and again is a power that is given away, a power that is laid down, a life that is there to give to the other in the midst. Okay, that was four things. I think there's one more to go. Here I'll creep back and pull another thread from the 11th chapter. Because it's referred to what happens in the 11th chapter is referred to twice in the verses that were fed, read uh, uh, earlier. And that's the story of Lazarus. Some of us would know, maybe all of us have a good sense of this kind of story, the story of a friend of Jesus who had died, sister of Mary and Martha, a brother of Mary and Martha, pardon me. He was in the tomb for four days, we find out in John chapter 11, before Jesus arrives on the scene. There was a sense that Jesus would say he was only sleeping, so there was no hurry on Jesus' part, but he died. And somewhere after the third or fourth day or so, the body really begins to de decay in, in a world that would be hot and humid, and they can't do the uh, uh, things that would be done to, in a 21st century world to the body. And Jesus would come into that scene, and when the first sister, Martha, would arrive and meet Jesus, her first words would be something like this, if only you had come sooner. And then a few moments later, when Mary comes, she would say similar words, if only you had come. If only you had been here, then maybe you could have touched him, healed him. The word about you and your healing power, the divine life that you brought Jesus, you could have done something. And Jesus would say in the midst of those conversations that he is the life, the resurrection life, the one who reveals that which only God can give. But the narrative moves forward just a little bit more. And what I want to draw into this idea of this king that comes comes to reveal himself to you and I and to all the world to see, this king who lays down power and comes to live in the midst of us, is this king would come, and when we read in John chapter 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus, before Lazarus was even read, uh, raised from the dead, Jesus seeing Mary's weeping, and the Jews who'd come along beside her, who were also weeping, was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And here we slow down just a little bit so we remember this. And it says in John 11, verse 35, that Jesus wept. Now, when I read text on a page or I scroll through something on a Kindle, my eyes just kind of move forward again and again. I, I, I learn how to read fast or you learn how to just kind of keep moving. One sentence leads to the next. What we don't always recognize is the drama that's unfolding. 
the slowness of what's happening in the moment. The fact that Jesus, God himself, would come into the world, would come and approach that in the midst of a a loss of life, and we'd come and he'd weep in his compassion. The heart of God would be seen. Oh, not in a way that others would think uh, a great king would come. No, he would step into the midst, just like John 1 verse 14 had alluded to, into the midst of the world and reveal a heart of compassion, care, to one another. I pastored a church just really not too, too far away from Skyview Nazarene for uh, 12 years here in Calgary. Had a lot of young families, a lot of children, and one young family that uh, we spent a lot of time with and just dearly loved was uh, a couple who had a beautiful son, and his name was Theo, and we liked seeing uh, Theo kind of grow up for two or three years uh, as they came in, and then, and then the, the mother got pregnant again, and we were excited for, for the next child that was going to arrive into this uh, family's life. Somewhere around the eighth month, Something went wrong. The indicators on the pregnancy weren't going so well. Before that baby was born, little Grace was born. She died inside the mother's womb. I watched in amazement. I'd never gone through something like that myself with my wife, Corrine. I've never experienced the loss of that, that kind of depth of a child in my own life. My wife has lost a brother. We've lost uh, a, um, a pair um, parents and we've lost grandparents, but not a child, not one that was still carried. We spent a lot of time with this couple, a lot of time. They would go on, and I'll save the the details here for a moment. They would go on through their life, and two or three years later, they would come to another pregnancy. Now their third pregnancy uh, with only one that was uh, living, Theo, the first one that had come. And they had another little boy two little boys, and they are hoping for a family of three. So they eventually had a fourth pregnancy. And in the fourth pregnancy, again, there was some uh, uh, physical things that were just not progressing well during that pregnancy near the end. When little Mordecai was, was born, the anticipation of the length of his life was expected to be just days. And he, li- he lasted about uh, seven or eight days or so before little Mordecai, the fourth child of this couple, passed away. As I watched over several years what was happening in this couple's life, I was amazed to watch the movement of God deeply immersed in their own faith and story life. The many who came around them in the community, friends in the church and friends in the broader Christian community who walked with them, cried with them, sat with them in the hospitals and in the homes and showed up on phones late into the night. I watched again and again as they talked about the experience of the God who came and met them in their pain and their loss and their grief. And I watched even in their se- as their fourth child, their second one that they celebrated a funeral uh, with as they celebrated life and the precious gift that Mordecai was to their family and to their home. It's in those moments that I'm reminded of the great truth that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, that ours is not as a king who just simply sits and reigns like he's on a throne and has nothing else to do but have someone deliver grapes. No, ours is a king who comes to us. And even now in the midst of our lives and our circumstances, he's the one who through his spirit, his presence, as we just sang about moments ago, 
is the one who comes to us and meets us in the pain and suffering of our own lives and cries and weeps and slows the story down. If you're a student or a parent or you have things in your life even today on this Sunday morning, there's likely for many of us things that at times we feel like are just absorbing every part of our free mental space, maybe our free emotional space. Elements where we're just constantly ruminating over again and again and we're going, God, if you had only... And yet the one who lays down his life does so so that he can lay down his life to come and sit with us, weep with us, cry with us. The amazing thing is this, not only do I get to experience as one who would know Jesus, follow Jesus like you, that great truth of who the living God is in Christ Jesus, but I get to be called into as one who is broken, as one who is experiencing new life again, the language of John would say abundant life or a life that's eternal life, which kind of has the same sense to be truthful. A life that's loving, a life that's, that, that's full of a light into the darkness of the world. This kind of life, as I experience the divine life myself, or as you and I kind of participate in this life, the next thing that we would see in John chapter 12 Verse 25 and 26 is this language. And anyone else who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates me in this life will keep it. And whoever serves me, which is the beginning of a new sense of direction here in the gospel, whoever would come after me, whoever would be enveloped and participate in my divine life, Whoever would come to know me and declare me as Lord and God and Savior and light and life and love, whoever would experience me, Jesus would say, must follow me. And where I am, there my Father will be. The great truth of the gospel is that Christ comes to us and then invites us. He invites you and me, people who don't all have it together. Certainly there's Rob Snow, but then there's the rest of us down here. (laughs) Sorry, I'm joking around. He invites all of us to come into this life of journey with God, and then he invites us, whether we're younger, older, whether we have it all together, whether we still feel the wounds of of our own lives, the pain, the grief, the loss of that which once was but no longer is. And as we walk forward, we become participants who follow in the same manner as the one who steps into the brokenness and pain in the world. Unbelievable. Post-resurrection after we follow the risen one, you and I now rise anew as he has laid down his life like a seed that falls and breaks and dies and yet produces in you, in me, in us a movement of life. A movement of life where we come along and we sit with, hold on to, share with. And as we might be reminded in the next chapter, which we won't go into, wash another's feet if they would let us. About five weeks ago, we had our first grandchild. 
Nova Drew is the most beautiful human being that I've ever met in my life. Well, maybe her mother and maybe her grandmother are also in the same category. <laughs> Nova Drew is so exciting to meet. In fact, I think in about two hours, I get to sit down and meet her again. And I count, count every kind of meeting that we have together and, and smile and, and excitement as an exciting part of my day and my life. About three weeks ago, as I held the hand of Nova, uh, our granddaughter, uh, on a Friday evening, I just was so happy and so amazed at how, how fragile her own life is. And I was reminded how much I'd forgotten of when we had children that were young and little and needy. And some of you who are parents, probably those who have been mothers, will know it's a big job. There's not a moment where you rest and you aren't aware of the fact that that child needs you. Well, amazingly enough, as I enjoyed that evening together with her and saw her uh, need in life and how she was cared for in love and, and gave thanks to God again and again in my own spirit as I, we spent a family time together, it was about 14 hours later that I drove up to Edmonton where my father, who's 93 years old, and about six weeks ago, we had transitioned him to a long-term care facility. Now, he's had the most spiritual influence of anybody in my life. A godly man, a loving man, a good earthly father. But he's at a stage where, to be honest, his life is as fragile as Nova Drew. Cancer kind of slowly ekes its way. Dementia progresses. A smile of warmth comes on his face when he recognizes my, my voice and my tone and we can talk about some things, but you know the truth is we talk about the same things 15, 20 minutes later. Most of the time when I visit my father, we just hold hands and we just sit in, in quiet and presence. Sometimes I pray and I say the same prayers over and over again. Sometimes I pray out loud and sometimes I don't. I'm reminded of how important it is for us, whether we have all the words, whether we know how to wash feet, whether we always know what to do, that you and I are called to be the very ones who now, enmeshed in the life of God, come and sit with, hold hands with those who are broken and fragile. That somehow the, the call that God has placed on our lives together, uniquely, individually, in our own storylines, is taking that same beautiful image that John was weaving together in his gospel story, and now in Christ, in the living one, who's the ascended one, through his spirit, we together sit in the midst of the brokenness and the pain of the world. We pray, we hold the hand of those who can't speak. We give, we give some more. We show up in the dark in the night when we're called upon. We pick up the phone and we pray with someone when the, God places their names upon our heart. For the gospel story invites us again and again to follow, not just follow so that we can memorize verses, so that we can remember the stories on the flannel graph and some of you are gonna have to be told about that after the service. We follow after him so that we can now become, in a sense, truly, as we've heard it again and again in our communities of faith, that we become the hands and feet of Jesus, that somehow the very love of God that we are continually to experience, now we sit in and share humbly, bit by bit, in the midst of the world. Somewhere around the 17th century or so, in the continent of Japan, in their history, 
amidst the earthquakes and a season of wars that were happening. The very few possessions that many tribal kind of, or tribal uh, small village families would have had would often be very cherished. And sometimes it was the tea bowls that would be broken through wars or through earthquakes or through quickly gathering things and having to move on if, if something was happening in a community. But they were precious commodities, these tea bowls. They, they often were kind of celebrated in a tea ceremony in their, in their culture as a family, as kind of a, as something that was very special. And it was, it was kind of part of their, their culture. When they were broken, they didn't just discard them like you and I may or may not do. But they would hold on to them. They wanted to kind of uh, keep them and pass them on. Some of us have heard about this art that began to emerge in the 17th century. It was the art of Kintsugi. Those who kind of had the understanding of making something new began to take these key uh, tea bowls and they began to put them together. And, and as they put them together, they kind of, the, the, the mortar that they used to kind of put the pieces together, they, they, they would nurture it kind of with a gold so that that which was broken and that which was kind of tossed aside now would become something that carefully was remade anew afresh and would look more beautiful. Now again, in today's modern time, you and I can go online and buy a Kintsugi bowl for $1,000 if we wanted to. The idea of making was the idea of remaking into something much more beautiful in the midst of its brokenness. The wonderment to me in all this is simply this reality, that as we come to follow Jesus Christ, He simply invites us to experience Him and then humbly go and serve others as we step into the darkness of the world. And as we do that, that through Christ and the presence of His Spirit in the world through us, that He's remaking something beautiful, something that many will miss, for it often happens in the dark of the night. It often happens in places in the, beside the well. It often happens in places where the room is close. But he's at work using you and using me to display his beauty, his glory in the world. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. I thank you for your long patience in nurturing us forward in love. I thank you that your presence and your power slowly remakes us. Yes, born again, anew, afresh in the language of John. Born into new life, into eternal life, and the hope of eternity before us. But slowly nurturing us so that we are fashioned to display the beauty that only you can give. And together, called then to serve, to follow, to step into places of darkness, to step towards another to give of ourselves in your name. Amen.